Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's a, a pleasure to be with you, and, and I'm excited to uh, to be beginning uh, what will be our, our sermon series during the months of July and August on the Ten Commandments, as Brad mentioned uh, before the service. Um, and as we get started today, what we're going to be focusing on is is just the first six verses of that reading from Exodus today, uh, really introducing us to the commandments and leading us into the very first commandment. And sort of one thing that, that's kind of part and parcel to the way that Martin Luther explains the commandments in the, the large and small catechism is ultimately this idea that if you get the first commandment straight, the rest just kind of flow naturally out of it. And if you get the other ones straight, well, then you've probably gotten the first one straight. Because really at the, at the heart of, of all sin is really that same sin that was present in the garden. It's idolatry. An insistence that, that we know better than God how life works. And so we're going to be taking a look at this uh, throughout the, the weeks and Sundays of the summer. And so we'll start at Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 1. I invite you to follow along with me if you have a Bible or in your bulletin. Moses writes this, he says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm going to stop right there. There's kind of two important points there. The first is note who these words are attributed to. God spoke all these words Saying, This is a claim we need to take rather seriously. Either God spoke them or He didn't. And so if we believe that God spoke them, we need to take these words seriously. And presumably, if God spoke them, He meant them. He intended for us to listen to them and follow them. Now the second point is this. Note that who this God is who's speaking... Note the way that he identifies himself. Verse 2 again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The way that God identifies himself as he gives these commands is the God who rescues his people. The God who heard the groanings of his people Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt he heard them, He answered them, and He rescued them. It is part and parcel to the identity of God to rescue His people. That's who He is. That's the way that He reveals Himself, is He is a God of rescue. A God who desires to set prisoners free, just the way He rescued His people, in Israel, his people Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. He continues to be that same God of rescue. He continues to be that God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh to rescue us out of sin, out of bondage, out of slavery to the enemy, so that we would be His chosen people set free to serve Him. He continues to be a God of rescue. He's continually coming to us, offering Himself for us. When we find ourselves in the midst of sin and temptation, when we find ourselves oppressed and overwhelmed by evil, He's the God who hears our prayers and who rescues. 
It is part and parcel to the identity of our God to rescue. And as we seek to listen to his commands, what we are doing is we are simply responding to the God who rescues. We often get it mixed up. We think that that in the Old Testament it was all law. And then Jesus comes in and now it all works by grace. But that's not what God himself says here. Before he gives the commands, he was working rescue. He rescues first and then we listen, then we follow. And the first way that he calls us to respond to this rescue that he offers us is to simply worship him above all else. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. It could also be, you, could have, you shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep who love me and keep my commandments. The call that we have as people who are recipients of rescue, people who have been saved from sin, is to simply worship God and serve Him above all else. That is the call that God gives to His people, is to worship Him alone, which is really actually quite reasonable. It makes perfect sense because the reality is, is that we tend to, we always in fact, worship the thing that we think will rescue us. We worship the thing that we believe has the power to bring us salvation. In the large catechism, Martin Luther, when he talks about what it means to have a God, the thing that he talks about is not what religion are you. Not what box you check on the anonymous survey. Not what you have in your Facebook profile of Protestants. But rather, he says that what your, who your God is, to have a God, is ultimately a matter of trust. It's ultimately a matter of where your heart lies. He writes this, he says, Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. Anything on which your heart relies or depends, that is your God. So if you want to find out where your God is, who your God is, the primary answer to that question isn't, what religion am I? The primary answer to that question is, where's my heart? What do I rely on and depend upon? What do I look to for rescue and salvation? When I find myself in Egypt enslaved, overwhelmed, stressed, oppressed, whatever it is, when I find myself in that place where I need something to rescue me, what do I look to? What do I cry out to? What do I long for to bring me salvation? That's your God. Anything on which your heart relies or depends, that I say is really your God. So what do you look to for rescue? 
when you're in Egypt, when you're enslaved, when you're overwhelmed, when you're stressed, when life isn't panning out the way that you hoped it would, what do you cry out to for rescue? In the large catechism, Luther says there's two primary idols in all the world. You know what they are? Money and self. Nice to know some things never change, right? 500 years ago, the primary idols in the world are the same that they are today. That the materialism we're so often shaped by, that we so often buy into, was the same 500 years ago, it was the same 1,000 years ago, and it was the same along before that. That we look to money to make a better life for ourselves. We, we put our trust in buying power. And if I could just have more and buy more, my life would be happier. I'd be at peace. I'd be content. And the same individualism that shapes our culture was shaping culture thousands of years ago. That it's up to me whether it's my ability to to climb the ladder or make that better life, or if it's my ability to, to please God and earn salvation, we look to ourselves or we look to our pocketbooks. Because those are the things on which our heart so often relies and depends upon. Those are the things that we cry out to for rescue, the things that we think can make things better. And they are quite simply idols that we cry out to. You know, when I think of of idolatry and and, and what it really looks like, the the image that comes to mind is is parenting. Sounds maybe a little weird, but just go with me. My, My daughter, God bless her, is helpless. Like completely helpless. I mean, she's like getting increasingly less helpless as she gets older. But you think of, of, about a child in utero, absolutely helpless, completely dependent upon his or her mother. And then they're born, and, and they're still completely dependent upon their mother. And, and now, my child, she can barely get her shoes on the right feet let alone provide for herself, let alone care for herself, let alone provide for all of the things that life requires. She can't put food on the table. She can't get a job. She can do nothing. Nothing except for get up in the morning and say, Mommy, Daddy, I need this. Children, they're virtually helpless. And you know what? The funny thing is, is parents, they see their helpless children and they actually delight to provide for them. Like when I'm not being a completely selfish nincompoop, I love to provide for my daughter. It brings me joy. It brings me delight. I love to provide for her. And I want to be able to care for her. Now I think about that and I think about the offense that would be brought to me and to my wife if all of a sudden I came home from work one day and my, my daughter's across the hall at our condo, in our condo building knocking on the neighbor's door. And you say, Della, what, what are you doing? Oh, well, I was, I was hungry. 
I needed dinner, and so I thought I would ask the neighbor to give me something to eat. Oh, be cut to the heart, right? That's my job, right? I'm supposed to provide for you. I'm supposed to care for you. I'm supposed to put food on the table for you. That is what I'm called to do as your father. I love to do it. Just let me provide for you. And it's not even just that I want to do it. But the idea of my child looking to someone else to do the things that I've been called in her life to do, you know what that would be saying? Dad, I don't trust you to take care of me. Dad, I don't trust you to give me what I need. I don't trust you to put clothes on my back and and food in front of me. I don't trust you. And she might have some legitimate reasons to actually say that. But when we go after idols, when we trust in money or ourselves or anything else in all the world, what we are saying to God is, God, I don't trust you to do the very thing that you've promised to do. I don't trust you to rescue me. Even though that's who you reveal yourself to be, that's who you say you are, I don't trust that you're able to do it. And so I'm going to go to this thing And look to that thing to do what only you can do. And when we do that, God says very plainly, there is judgment for that. And often what this judgment looks like is he simply hands us over to that thing that we want to set our hearts on. You want to trust in money? All right. And it will consume you. And you're searching after money and things. It will be this endless pursuit. And it will ruin your life. It will destroy you. It will eat you alive. You want to look to yourself above all else? Okay, here you go. And you will be so self-absorbed. You'll find yourself not only cut off from God, but cut off from the world around you, from the people that you love. God simply hands us over temporally and eternally to the things that we want. And it eats us alive. And the reason that there's judgment for our idolatry is quite simply because our God says very clearly He is a jealous God. He wants your hearts. He wants all of you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to be the one who offers you all those things, who provides what you need. He wants to care for you. And so there's judgment upon idolatry as a warning to not go down that path. It's a warning so that we would repent and turn from those idols because the reality is they're not real, they're false, they're not worthy of your worship, and they cannot make good on their promises. And so God judges idolatry so that we would see those idols for what they are. So that we would repent of our idols and see God for who He is. So that we would see clearly that our God is the one who desires above all else to bring us rescue. That He's the only one who can free us from enslavement. He's the only one who can fulfill our hopes He's the only one who can make that better life we so long for and He promises to do it. Because that's who He is. 
his desire, his M.O., the way he operates part and parcel to his identity is to rescue. So don't set your hearts on things that can't make good on their promises. Don't look to money to rescue you. Don't look to yourself to bring rescue. Look to the only one who can rescue you. Look to the one who promises that he is coming again to bring his perfect kingdom. And when he does, he will rescue you and all creation from bondage to sin. Set your hearts on, worship, trust the one who in his son Jesus and the cross that he bore already has rescued you. Amen? Amen.